0: Uh, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Pretty good? It's uh, supposed to get warmer, so hopefully that actually happens. Um, my name is Andrew, by the way. I'm a pastor here on staff at the Leewood campus, and uh, it's great to be here with you. And I wanted to do something a little different this morning as we got started. Uh, kind of before we read Scripture, before we started, I wanted to ask a question. And uh, it's a little bit of a downer of a question, so uh, fair warning. But uh, it's an important question, and I'll explain why in a minute. But the question is this. So, What is the worst thing? What is the worst sin that you can think of? The absolute most evil thing. And maybe you can't just think of one. That's too hard. So your top three. What's in your top three worst things someone can do? Right? Take a minute. Think about it. All right. Here are mine. Here are mine. Murder, corruption, and Yankee fan. Those were my three. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Uh, that's not my top three. I'm not even sure you could really rank those kinds of things in any meaningful way, but uh, here's the follow-up question, okay? Here's, here's why I asked. When you tried to think of those worst possible things as you were running them through your mind, and as a few kind of bubbled up to, oh, yeah, that's the worst one, uh, did, it, did you struggle personally with anything that came to mind? <laughs> did, your, did any of your major vices make the list in your mind? Uh, your anger issues, your propensity to lie, your bitterness toward your boss or toward someone at work or a friend, probably not. And uh, don't worry, I'm not here to judge, none of, none of my vices made my list either, uh, right? It's funny how that works, isn't it? Funny how we all do that. Uh, there's this tendency we all have as human beings to find someone or someone or anything or anyone who's worse off than we are, uh, and that's how we sleep at night, right? It's like, whew, at least I'm not that person, at least I don't do that. It's just kind of human nature. We know we have problems. We know we're not perfect. We know we have flaws. But at least we're not as bad as those people out there somewhere. And the problem is, with that thinking, is that when you begin to, to read Scripture, uh, you begin to see that, that uh, the Bible does not make lists like that like we do. And especially the passage we're going to read in Hebrews in just a minute. The Bible doesn't make lists like, like ours. The Bible does not say these sins are bad, but they're not too bad. But these ones are really bad, so don't, you know, make sure you don't do these. And if you do, you know, these ones are just okay. The Bible doesn't do that. And what you find is the most dangerous sin in the Bible is not the one that you think is the worst. It's not the one that your pastor thinks is the worst. It's not the one that your society says is the worst. The most dangerous sin in the Bible isn't the one that makes you the most uncomfortable when you think about it. The worst sin in the Bible is the one that you have become completely comfortable with. That's the worst sin. It's the one uh, that doesn't make your, you don't think about it anymore. It doesn't make your list anymore. You maybe struggled with it at one point in your life, you, you actively fought against it, but now you don't. You've given up. You don't try anymore. It's the one you know is there, but hey, you've got bigger fish to fry right now. It's the one where you think, oh, is that real? you know, it's, is that even a sin, sin? That one. The most dangerous sin in your, in your life and in mind is the one we are the most comfortable with. And if you're here this morning and you claim to be a Christian, which is probably most of us, and you've got sins in your life and things you know that are wrong, things that you know offend God, things that you don't even notice anymore, you don't think twice anymore, you shrug them off, right? We've got to sit up and pay attention to this passage this morning. Because if you go on sinning deliberately, there's no no more dangerous position to be in according to the Bible. And you don't have to take my word for it, okay? It's right here in our passage this morning, Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26. This is God's word. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned, who has spurned the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? And has outraged the spirit of grace, for we know him who said, "Vengeance is mine; I will repay." And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You read that, and it's like, yeah, that's not scary at all, right? That was a really that was an easy read. <laughs> but you see what the author's doing here. You see what he's doing. When we think the, of the worst sin, the kind of, the kind of sin, the kind of decision, the kind of person that warrants a warning like that. We think of those terrible people over there doing those awful things. But those words aren't directed to them. They're directed to us right here in the church. And they aren't directed to people who have overtly rejected the gospel. They aren't talking about the person who says, I've never believed the Bible. I've never believed in Jesus. I have no interest in doing so. We're not about that person. By the way, if you are that person, you're here this morning. I'm glad that you came. And I want to say thanks for your honesty. I, I, I really do appreciate that. Um, and I'm glad, again, I'm glad you're here. And, this, and just so you know, this, this may be one of the easiest areas for you to agree with the Bible on because my hunch is that if you really struggle with Christianity, if you're here and you really struggle with the faith, uh, one of your main concerns or one of your main uh, issues is hypocrisy in the church. It's, you know, people who claim to believe one thing but they act a totally different way and if this passage teaches anything, it's that God is just as annoyed with that, it's just as sick of that as you are, if not more so. So you can agree with him on that. That teaches anything, it's that. Because this warning is for people who genuinely think they are Christians. That's most of us here. And the author has said, uh, and we'll say again in this sermon that we call Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, that there are some who think they are believers and they are not. They are Christians and they are not. And that's who this warning is for. And in the passage we just read, the author makes clear that one of the most important indicators for true faith... In Jesus, it's not whether or not you sin, because we all sin, every one of us, but how comfortable you feel with your sin when you know it is sin, when you know that it's wrong, when you know it breaks God's heart for you. So the question this morning is, how comfortable are you with your sin? How comfortable are you with it? And this is a question that we all need to answer. And to do that well, I think we need to talk about two things. The first is, uh, what, what is deliberate sin? What is the deliberate sin this, this author is talking about? What is deliberate sin? What does it look like? And then we need to talk about the, its opposite. We need to talk about what is deliberate faith? What's the, what's the opposite of that? What's the antidote to that? Deliberate sin and deliberate faith. So first, the bad news. Okay, what is deliberate sin? And uh, if you notice, it, it got really quiet in here when we after read that passage. I get that. Um, it, this is, I know this isn't fun to hear. I get it. Uh, it wasn't fun to write the sermon, uh, f- believe me, it wasn't. Um, and if you're here for the first time this morning, I'll be honest with you, this was not the passage I would have chosen uh, to lead off with for you uh, if, it, if it were up to me. But for better or worse, and I think it's better, we, uh, we preach the Bible here, and uh, that's who we are. And uh, even when it's uncomfortable, even when we struggle with it, we take every word of it seriously, Okay. And uh, so, at least we're consistent. You got to give us that, okay? We we believe in this Bible. We believe it's the word of God, and we listen to it. So, okay, with that other okay, deliberate sin. What is deliberate sin? Well, the first thing that this passage teaches about deliberate sin is that fundamentally, fundamentally, deliberate sin, a lifestyle of deliberate sin, reveals a deep spiritual ignorance. Ignorance, and uh, you see this especially in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So let's just get this monkey off our back, okay? This phrase, deliberate sin. Uh, What does it mean? It's this kind of a scary phrase because on one level, all sins are deliberate, right? Every sin is deliberate. I mean, I don't accidentally lie. If I did accidentally lie, then it wouldn't be a lie because part of lying means I intended to deceive you. Otherwise, it just means I don't know what I'm talking about and that's something completely different, right? I, intent is involved in lying. So every, every sin in one sense is deliberate. It's also kind of a scary passage because I don't care who you are, you go on sinning. We all go on sinning, don't we? I don't care who you are. You're a Christian, non-Christian, Mother Teresa, okay? You sin. No one's perfect. None of us have arrived. So really, the teaching team this week, we really studied this word, this phrase, like we really studied it. <laughs> And, uh, you know, if you're looking for a loophole, we we looked for it too, okay? Um, Believe me, we looked. And essentially, though, this text is talking about the person who claims to be a Christian, yet maintains a lifestyle of deliberate, eyes-wide-open sin. This is the person for whom no sacrifice remains for sin. That's what the author says, that kind of person. Now, with that in mind, just a few clarifications. This is not talking about the sins that we are aware of in our lives and are actively working to fight and turn from and are praying for God's help to fight against, okay? We're not talking about those. Yes. We're not talking about uh, the addiction that you're struggling with, that you're fighting, because addiction recovery is often very slow and it's, also, it's a stumbling process, okay? In other words, it's not, the, it's not the sins that still happen, maybe more often than they should, but you genuinely feel regret about and are taking steps to find healing and forgiveness. It's the sins that you know that you're doing, you know that they're wrong, but you are completely comfortable with them. You don't worry about them. When you do them, you don't feel guilt. You feel, well, you don't really feel anything. You know deep down that what you're doing is wrong, but you just don't care. You're over it. You know, it's like no big deal. I don't even think about it anymore. So what are we in danger of becoming comfortable with that we do in our lives? Well, just a few examples. Maybe you... You stole something. You genuinely stole something. And we we don't use that word for some of these categories, but maybe you cheated on your taxes. It's tax season, right? We're all doing those right now, hopefully. If you're not, this is your reminder. You need to do your taxes. Easy to cheat on. That's stealing. Maybe you downloaded music or a movie, right, that you didn't actually pay for. it's, It's so easy, we don't call it stealing, but that's what it is. Maybe you gossip. It's under the guise of a prayer request, right? So it's okay. You kind of put the Christian facade on it. Maybe it's lust. Okay, that's a common one. Just a little look, right? It's not going to hurt anyone. No one has to know. Or we're, li- you know, we're living together. Right? We're not married. I know that's not what we're supposed to do, but we're going to get engaged soon. So it's okay. It's fine. Maybe it's self-righteousness. You, you struggle with that. You don't even think about it. You're not judgmental. You're just always right. And you drive people away. Or maybe it's the good things you know you should do, but you just don't. I don't have the margin to be generous. I don't have time to serve other people. Now listen, I get it. I have not listed anything here, and I could keep going. I haven't listed anything here that we have not done. Probably every single person in this room. I probably haven't listed one thing here that we won't at some point maybe do again in the future. But the key is, if we don't struggle with them anymore... If we don't question them anymore, if we don't confess them anymore to God or to others, we are in real danger. And not only are we in real danger, we are in a deep spiritual ignorance. Now, how is that? Well, the key is that this happens after you receive the knowledge of truth, which means after you've heard through and through what Jesus has done for you on the cross, you still think, after all that, you still think that his sacrifice is more about making you socially acceptable to other people And it is about making you spiritually acceptable to a holy God. If you're living a lifestyle of deliberate sin, it means that you still think that what Jesus did was make you socially acceptable to other people around you. Instead of making you spiritually acceptable to a holy God, you still think at your very core that the problem with sin is that it makes you look bad, not that it means you are bad. You see the difference between those two things. And listen, God is not the morality police, okay? He understands better than we do that our heart is corrupt on the inside, that our wrong actions are simply the symptoms of a much bigger and more dangerous disease that the Bible calls sin. It's an inner problem. It's not an outer problem. But if you only treat the symptoms, the disease will still kill you. When you think sin is about appearance, about how you look on the outside, then as long as no one catches you, Right? No one will ever know. Or as long as your culture doesn't really care about it, right? Everybody's doing it. Everybody does this. Or as long as you think it is a small and trivial wrongdoing, this isn't going to hurt anybody, then you will continue to do it over and over and over and over again. And eventually, if you don't heed the warnings, you'll find that you never really understood the gospel of Jesus at all and that there is no sacrifice left for you because you have completely misunderstood and rejected the only sacrifice that could actually save you. Now, if you turn back, at any point, if you turn back, then you'd be forgiven. God promises to forgive us when we truly repent, but the more comfortable we get with our sin. No matter how small it is, no matter how private it is, no matter how harmless it is, the harder and harder it is to understand your need for forgiveness at all. And you see the danger there? And this is simply willful spiritual ignorance. A lifestyle of deliberate sin reveals this deep spiritual ignorance, but it also reveals a deep spiritual ugliness. Ugliness. It's very ugly. And you see that, uh, especially in verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? You see, when, it, when, a, when we live a lifestyle deliberate, high-handed sin, it means we have no clue, we have no clue how ugly our sin truly is. And I hinted at this before, but I think this analogy is helpful. We categorize our sins as human beings. We just, we just do this. We categorize our sins into really bad and, and not that bad. We basically proved that at the beginning of the sermon. <laughs> there's some that are really bad, and there's some that just aren't that bad. The problem is that sin, at its very core, is a disease that we all have. It's not a specific wrongdoing that we each do. Because specific decisions in everyone's life, right, those are all going to look different. And it is, in a, very real, in a very real way, a much more serious offense to murder someone than to harbor anger against them, okay? No one's arguing that that's not true. Those are two very different things, legally and morally. Yet Jesus says that in God's eyes, they are one and the same, to harbor an angry thought and to commit murder. Well, why is that? How is that possible? Because both of them come from the same evil disease in our hearts. The disease is the real problem. It's not the symptoms. Some people have symptoms of sin that are much worse than ours. Absolutely. But we are all infected and we are all separated from God because of it. So in a very real sense, the honest Christian knows, the mature Christian knows that to think a lustful thought is just as ugly. It is just as awful. It is just as selfish. It is just as disgusting as having an affair. And keep in mind, Jesus had to die for the affair and the lustful thought. He didn't make that distinction. We must never forget that. Jesus had to die for both. And so either person, the person who indulges their eyes without remorse, and the person who actively seeks a sexually promiscuous lifestyle, are equally trampling underfoot the Son of God, are equally mocking His torture and death on the cross for our sins, laughing at Him, making light of Him, You cannot make light of any sin in your life without making light of Jesus and what he's done. You just can't. They always go together. And if we find ourselves doing something we know is wrong, but we don't believe it's really that bad, then we are really no different than the most evil person that we imagined at the beginning of the sermon. Sin is ugly. That's a fact. And when we willfully and callously sin, it doesn't make sin less ugly. It simply reveals that we have become way too comfortable with its presence in our lives and that we have become less and less comfortable with God's presence in our lives because the two of those things will not cohabitate. One will kick out the other eventually. Deliberately, sinning reveals a spiritual ignorance. It reveals a deep spiritual ugliness. And finally, it results in a deep spiritual dread. Dread. And uh, look again at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth... There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume God's adversaries. And then again in verse 30, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the real dilemma, I think, of the modern person uh, is that we have worked so hard to convince ourselves that concepts like sin and divine judgment after death are archaic ideas and they are oppressive ideas and we need to get rid of them. We have worked very hard to do that and yet we know so thoroughly deep down that they are true, that we are very deeply conflicted about it and how we live our lives. And I'll, I'll, let me show you how that is because you know it's true because every one of us, you're, whether you're a Christian, you're a non-Christian, I don't care where you are, you work hard to live a decent life. You do. That's why you treat others relatively well. You take care of your kids, right? You don't steal, go around stealing cars from people, probably. Why? Well, yeah, right? I don't want to speak for everyone, but... Right? You don't, we don't do those things. Well, well, why not? If there is no God and there is no judgment, if there is no meaning at all to the decisions that you make morally, that's all just a social construct that we made up then why do, any, why do you care? Why do anything at all? Because you want, you want to justify yourself. And we all do. We want to accomplish something with our lives. We, we, want to, we want something to show at the end of our lives. Like there's someone there worth convincing at the end of our lives. And we're so desperate for someone. We are so desperate for anyone important to tell us we did a good job to tell us we did it right, that all the pain and the hurt and the injustices of the world and in our lives were not for nothing. We're desperate for that. And the Bible tells us there's a reason for that because there is a God and he is judge. And he will set things right, but the problem is, and this is what the author of Hebrews reminds us, is that God is not just judge, he is your judge. He is our judge. And we will stand before him someday. That is the only way life makes sense is if someday you stand before your Creator and give an account for your life. And that is why, for the genuine Christian, life will result in more and more peace and joy because they know Jesus absorbed the divine punishment that they deserved. Even if they committed the worst of sins. And the Bible is full of people who have committed the worst of sins and received forgiveness from God. And it is also why, as the author points out, that the fake Christian... Or even the non-believer will live a life that results in more and more dread. Because the closer death comes to you, the more we fear the judgment to come. The most dangerous sin in your life is the one that you've grown comfortable with because that's the one that will catch up with you in the end. There's nothing, (coughs) I'm sorry, we don't like thinking of God as judge, I get that. But we need him to be judge if life is going to make sense at all. Otherwise, none of this makes sense. And that is why Jesus came, was to save us from judgment by his sacrifice. And if we reject that sacrifice, there is no appeal you can make before the judge. There's nothing you can say to explain away your deliberate sin. And if when we stand before the Lord of the universe, we cannot wholeheartedly point to Jesus as our hope and our savior, there is no defense. There is only the fear that inevitably judgment is coming. And it's a judgment that we chose over and over and over again, over Jesus. Now, I know we're only halfway done here, and this has been intense, but don't misunderstand God, okay? I don't want to misrepresent him, okay? Warnings like this, Hebrews 10 and others, are an act of love on his part. They are not an act of hatred. But people who get the most worked up over you in your life, the people who raise their voices with you, are usually the ones that love you the most, and uh, children, right, that explains a lot about how you interact with your parents, doesn't it? Right? It's because they love you. There is, uh, <clears throat> it is no act of love to allow someone you care about to walk into oncoming traffic because, well, you don't want to offend them. Right? That's no act of love. Thank God he isn't that way. He speaks up. And thank God, this isn't the end of our passage this morning, because God is confident of better things for us. He's confident of better things. That's what the author says in verse 39. He says, we are confident of better things for you. And despite the dangers we've talked about, there is reason for confidence when we remember to live a life with deliberate faith. Deliberate faith. So we know what deliberate sin looks like. What does deliberate faith look like? Well, first, deliberate faith, we learn in this passage, embraces suffering embraces suffering. And you see this especially in verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see, where deliberate sin is done to avoid suffering, basically in every case. Deliberate faith chooses suffering, embraces suffering, sometimes intense suffering, in the battle with sin. It accepts it. It's interesting to me that the author points back to this time uh, to encourage this congregation that he's speaking to. He says, (laughs) essentially what he's saying is, hey, remember when you first came to Christ and your life was just terrible? You guys remember that? You came to Christ and you lost a bunch of friends and you, know, you got thrown in jail and people stole things from you. You were publicly shamed and mocked for your choice. Some of you were even publicly beaten and just kind of exposed. Do you remember that? When you're tempted to sin, I want you to think about that. <laughs> I want you to think back to those times, the good old days. <laughs> this is probably not where we would start to encourage these people, but what the author is saying, he's saying, deliberate faith, I know you've got it. I know it's in there. I've seen it before. And so have you. Don't give up now. Don't stop now. Keep going. And for these first century Christians, uh, their number one temptation to sin was to return to the more acceptable religion of Judaism, which they left, to follow Jesus. That was their number one temptation because if they just did that, then the the public shaming would stop and the plundering would stop and the imprisonment would stop. Now that's not our situation, but we are equally tempted to cut corners to avoid suffering, are we not? Isn't that essentially why we indulge in any sin in the first place? And part of the implication here is that to persevere in our faith, we need to understand and accept more and more that suffering is not simply a possibility of the Christian life. It is an inevitability. It is inherent to the Christian life. We may not suffer persecution like our brothers and sisters do around the world even today, but any fight with sin can and probably will result in pain, result in scars, in public shame, in exposure, in confession, and apologies, and demotions, and loss of reputation, and loss of relationships. Okay, that is all suffering for the faith. And this means that if your primary goal in life is to be happy, if that's your number one goal, the pursuit of comfort and ease and satisfaction of your desires, you will never grow in your faith. Never. Your faith cannot grow in that environment. You'll never become the person you were created to be, and you will never know the satisfaction that comes with a life that transcends personal gratification. And that scares me. Maybe it scares you too. It scares. I love to be comfortable. I love to do what's easy, and I foolishly assume that all the things worth having and doing are things that come quickly and easily. It's like, you know, Amazon Prime, baby, I love that. I don't just want it, I want it right now, right? That's the the water we swim in. That's the culture we live in. And, And you can find plenty of preachers who will tell you that Jesus just wants you to be happy. If you just have enough faith, that's what he wants, but they haven't read the book of Hebrews. Real faith suffers with joy because it trusts and believes that Jesus is better Christians suffer. It's just what we do. Our master did it. He said, take up your cross. He did not say, sit back and relax. That's what millions of Christians around the globe do today. We are a suffering people. But the only way we can deliberately accept suffering now, this is true, the only way we can deliberately accept it is by keeping the end in mind. And this is our second part of deliberate faith. Deliberate faith keeps the end in mind. And you see this all over the passage today, but particularly in verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, suffering, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one coming. You see that? You suffer now. You're able to endure it now because you know that you will receive a better and abiding possession. Now, I I wanted to point this out because oftentimes when we talk about sin, like we have this morning, it's easy to leave thinking that the preacher or the the scriptures have said, hey, don't sin because sinning is bad. Now, that's not untrue, but it's only half the truth because the author does not say, hey, avoid sin because it's bad. He says, pursue a life of faith because it is good. It's better than the alternative. By sinning, whatever the sin is, you are buying into a life with less pleasure and less comfort and less beauty, not more. Now, the difficulty is that all that good stuff, it comes later. And part of maturing in our faith is saying no to the cheap imitations now. Money, sex, power, comfort, security, whatever those are. So that we can fully say yes to the unimaginable beauty then. And that's very countercultural for us today. But the author of Hebrews is right. The only way to live a truly moral life without losing your mind in this broken world is a firm belief that reward is coming next in the end. That somehow this is all going to work out for good. That is not an antiquated pie-in-the-sky pie sentiment that our culture needs to reject, as, as many have said. That is not that. It is the bedrock of a good and meaningful life and a good and meaningful death. If you don't believe there's something better on the other side of death, you will not live a moral life because why would you? Deliberate faith doesn't choose now over then. It does not bank on the, on the distractions of the present but on the promises of God for the future. It always believes and trusts that God will make good on his promises in the end. And that's hard to hold on to. There's really only one reason anyone would hold on to that truth for their life. And this is our final point. Deliberate faith can suffer and it can trust with the end in mind only because it places its confidence in Jesus. Only because it places its confidence in Jesus. And it's hinted here in verse 35. The author says, don't throw away your confidence so easily. Don't throw it away. And now this this word confidence is the same one the author has used before and it goes really back to, to verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We have confidence. Now please hear this. Your confidence that you can be saved. Your confidence that you can fight and even kill sin in your life. Your confidence to endure any suffering that comes your way. Your confidence that there is a life after death worth suffering for. That confidence that you have cannot be in yourself. Cannot be in yourself. If we've learned anything from this passage, is that we cannot have confidence in ourselves to win this battle with sin we will lose every time and we will lose badly we must put our confidence in the man who was tempted just like us and sympathizes with our weaknesses yet who actually lived a sinless life he did what we never could do the great high priest the heir of all things the creator of all things the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power who died for these sins that uh, that, that we struggle with who rose again so that they would not have the last word in our lives we can have confidence not because we're perfect, quite the contrary. Even when we don't want to sin, we go on sinning, says Paul in Romans chapter 7. We have confidence not because of us, but because of him. Because he proved that a life of deliberate faith wins. He proved it. He proved that suffering does not have the final word in our lives when he endured all suffering common to humanity. Emotional pain, physical pain, Psychological pain, relational pain, he did it all, and, and then some. He proved that, uh, that uh, there is an age and a life coming that will make the beauty and goodness of this one pale in comparison. And he proved that he is trustworthy in all that he promises because even death itself could not hold him back. There's nothing he cannot do. No sin, no sin is worth turning your back on this person, this Jesus. Don't waste your confidence on petty disobediences and sheep imitations. Don't waste it. Put it on Jesus. He will not disappoint you. He will not disappoint you. Let us pray. Father, we do confess after reading a passage like that, that we so often fail you. I think we we feel that. But Father, this passage reminds us that it's not about our success or failure, it's about our confidence in Jesus' success, in Jesus' life, in his sinless life, in his sacrifice on the cross, in his absorbing of our judgment. And Father, whatever happens to us, whatever sin we struggle with, whatever fight we find ourselves in, whatever suffering we encounter, I pray we never lose our grasp on that truth that his victory is our victory forever. Give us the strength to hold on to that this morning, this week, this year, our lives. We pray this in his name. Amen.